I guess the first half of your career, you just try to be as engaged as you possibly can and let it take you, take you where it takes you. In the second half of the, your career, you've got all that knowledge to work from. And what you really need to do is, is spend more time listening. Hi, I'm Matt McKee. I created Cherry Bomb in the Sweet Blast series of limited edition photos with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. Today, I'm talking with Tim Kerwin, CEO of Hotel Concepts Plus. A 25-year veteran of the hospitality industry, he was the opening general manager of Boston's Intercontinental Hotel and Elements Hotel, as well as numerous projects in New England and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be with you. One of the things that has often struck me was that luxury and sustainability were never really words that I would have thought of in the same sentence, and yet I think that has been happening a lot more often, certainly recently, than I suspected. First of all, how did you get started in the hospitality industry? Well, the short version is I needed to eat. <laughs> Consequently, a job in the hotel included free meals. Ah, yes. So I came to Boston from New London, New Hampshire, to pursue a radio and television career. I was uh, a music major in college and wow. fell into the hotel business virtually, you know, <laughs> By just working in the hotel. My first job in Boston was at the Parker House. Oh, wow. And it, it was one of those situations where I wasn't particularly adept at anything. But if I showed up every day and put in the time, they seemed to promote me for some reason. <laughs> You're doing something right then. That, that's how it all ended up working. And when did you first start noticing the sustainability aspect kind of coming into the, the hotel world? Well, it's interesting. If you go back to pre-opening of Intercon, I had actually done five or six other openings in Boston, you know, the Bostonian Hotel and Hotel Commonwealth, and I'd opened a bunch of hotels. And all of them had a, uh, I guess you would call it an environmental awareness program. But the truth of the matter is it was a lot of talk and there wasn't a lot of rubber meeting the road. You know, we thought by offering to change the towels every other day was a big deal. (laughs) But when I worked overseas in Europe and in the islands, the whole culture of sustainability was ingrained in everything we did. Farm to table, we didn't call it that. That's just what it was. Conservation of all types, recycling, et cetera, et cetera. So it was hard to get the big companies. It's like turning the Titanic. We couldn't get big companies to actually spend the time and treasure on putting really comprehensive programs in place. So it ended up being mostly at local levels, local hotels that were particularly tied into the local uh, agribusiness, et cetera. For example, wine country, hotels in wine country, and the spas and things were doing lots of organic things long before institutional hotels and urban hotels turned out to do it. Fast forward to today, you know, everyone's embracing it. I think COVID's been a blessing in many ways because it's really forced a reset that was really overdue in our industry. Our industry was so successful, so strong. Demand was so over the top for the last decade that no one could foresee it literally closing overnight, which is really what happened, which forced a complete reassessment of what we do. Gotcha. COVID definitely felt like it was, as you said, a blessing in disguise because it seemed like it gave everybody pause. 
that could pause at that point. I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't want to pause because they needed to make a living. But for a lot of bigger companies, it seemed like that was the point where they could actually take a break and rethink where they were at and kind of reassess things. What do you see coming out of this as these hotels are coming back online? Well, you're spot on. Survival has an amazing way of of forcing a change. (laughs) Um, As we come back online, the biggest challenge we have, I was just in Miami last month and we were talking about industry, uh, international and domestic industry trends and, and concerns. And a lot of people there were in the development investment side of the business. And the talk was mostly about money and cash and equity and, and, and underwriting, et cetera. But when it came to a summary at the end, and we all got to talk about the industry as a whole and say, what about the actual hotel situation? The number one problem is staff. We had to turn off all our staff. We had literally five people in some of our major thousand room hotels babysitting the building for the last year. The other 500 employees were furloughed. Now we're in the process of bringing them back at this point, but we're bringing them back in phases. We're bringing them back as demand warrants. And it's, uh, it's been a real struggle for those employees to survive and, and, you know, keep their head above water over the last year. Uh, there really literally has been nothing. Many of the hotels were operating at 20% occupancy or less and no food and beverage. Mm-hmm. We were farming out the food and beverage entirely to delivery service. That was a band-aid for the period of time we had to do it. But now try to turn all that back on, try to bring in dozens and dozens and hundreds of cooks and servers and bartenders. And everyone is, of course, now simultaneously looking for these people <laughs> And it's the number one, it's the number one problem we have is finding and recapturing our, our teams and in many cases rebuilding new teams from scratch. It's the number one complaint that we now have in our hotels, especially at the full service level, full service level, is the level of service is still not there. Mm. And they're still being asked to pay rack rates, if you want to call it that, or, or, or top rates. And especially the resorts and the um, suburban upscale hotels, not the urban hotels. The urban hotels really haven't come on board yet, but all those resort hotels are still trying to get $1,500 a night, but they just don't have the service and the, and the quality that support it at the level they should be. So that's a big challenge for the industry right now to come back comprehensively. Do you think the sustainability side of things is going to actually help to become the sales tool to because that's that seems to be the the thing that's on everyone's the tip of their tongue. The sustainability side of things will actually be used as a sales tool going forward. Well, it it, it, it should be more than that. I I'm, I'm afraid that the gimmicks, especially the technology gimmicks, sometimes are marketed, but again, really not contributing to the experience. Hmm. The sustainability piece has to be real. You know, you mentioned when we talked offline about the bees that we did years ago. 500,000 bees on the roof of the hotel producing honey and producing wax for candles and and just sustaining the agriculture in the area and the gardens. And that was a big initiative 10, 15 years ago. So, I mean, you have to really do things like that and, yeah. and, and make it part of the culture, but also the customer, I think, has to see that it's real. Yeah. And it is more so now than it has been Everything from water conservation to chemical, organic, every you know, organic conversions of all the chemicals that hotels used to use, uh, all of that is um, 
you know, it's a marketing thing, but it's 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 more a, a true. Uh, experiential paradigm shift. Well, certainly bees are very close to my heart with my honeydew piece. And yeah, when I heard actually that the research that I was doing uh, topped out at 150,000, 500,000 bees. And they were using the honey for the, the bars and the restaurants. And is that, was it really sustainable like that? Yes. Yes. It was, um, it was terrific. We had a bee consultant, an apiary consultant that actually worked with my team to execute it and, and grow it over time. We harvested year two, as you probably know, year one, it's a stabilization period. Uh, we, we built it up to about a half a million bees. It was phenomenon that people not only heard about and read about, but saw because we put a monitor at the, at the hostess desk of the bees on the roof. Oh gosh. We actually showed them live camera uh, activity of the bees. So, you know, in the morning, they're very active and in the, in the evening, they're active. And then, but they come in and, and fly in and out constantly and obviously produce the honey. And then we would actually have in the restaurant, of course, the name of the restaurant was Fiel, which of course is French for honey. So it was a natural. <laughs> and we made candles, which we, which we gave and sold to people. And we made honey, which we had available for sale. And we also incorporated it in a lot of the menu items. We had a Provence theme. So honey is very prevalent in the Provence cuisine. We weaved its way through the whole program. And, and it was very, like I said, it was a real commitment and it was real. It was the real deal. Unfortunately, we've had to let the bee uh, program go away for a while because we had a real kill two years ago. I forget whether it was a winter or a combination of things and just was a chance to sort of reset the whole thing and rethink the whole thing. And over the years, we had no real problems. From the 12th floor down is the hotel, but from the 14th floor up is all private residences. Yeah. Well, these bees lived, the apiary lived on top of the ballroom, which was on top of the lower half of the portion of the hotel. And of course, being neophyte as in the beginning, uh, I was concerned we were going to have bee issues. You know, the bees are going to go flying in the, in the residence's windows or something. We never had any issues whatsoever oh, wow. because well, the professionals positioned everything correctly, but they flew out into all of the seaport. And you can imagine they do about two and a half mile radius. Oh my God, I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah, they go to the public gardens, they go to the, the, the uh, common, they went all the way out to the, the fields out in the seaport. And it was uh, really quite a phenomenon. We did have one incident where if the queens leave the hive, the drones all leave too. Yeah. And we and we had a series of queens in the different hives. One of the queens decided she'd had enough or whatever <laughs> and went down and parked herself on one of our gas lanterns on the waterfront in the gardens. Oh, we have our own two and a half acres of gardens at the hotel. And when she went, about 150,000 bees went with her <laughs> and covered all the lamps on the in the area. I mean, top to bottom, just covered with bees. So we immediately had to rope it off to prevent anyone, you know, especially someone who might be allergic from being stung. But it became a photo op and a tourist attraction. We had TV cameras showing up. We had people coming down, taking pictures. And it was pretty much a phenomenon. And it was a touch point. You know, people learned about, oh, we, they knew after that story went out that we had these bees on the roof and they learned a little bit about it. 
That story reminds me of the, uh, there's a bridge down in Texas somewhere in Austin, I think it is, that has the bat population in there. And when the bat population first moved in, everyone kind of freaked out and was thinking, you know, all the, the negative stereotypes of bats. And then a bat specialist came down and said, no, this is a really good thing. And they're eating all these insects. And it was an educational moment as well as became a, a tourist attraction as well. So it was kind of <laughs> fascinating. You're still with the Intercontinental. Is that correct? Well, no, I consulted for them. For a few years after I left the day-to-day operations role, as I built the Aloft and Element with one of my clients up in the seaport, as I built a couple of hotels out in St. Louis, a bunch of projects that I've been involved with over the years, last five or six years since I went out into the development side of the business. But I still am in touch with all these people. And then I still, you know, certain things will come across my desk that I can push off to some of the bigger companies if they want to get involved and I might not be interested. So I still have you know, a close relationship with them and others. So some of the things that we were in the midst of doing that had to be put on a shelf during COVID are starting to bubble again. That's the status of the industry right now. You had mentioned the art program. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, I'm, my father was an artist, number one. So I have a little bit of uh, a, pre, a unique pre- appreciation of all the various mediums that he worked in. Unlike you, mm. who work in a very specialized series of mediums, he did mostly oils and uh, watercolors and commercial art uh, illustration work. He was one of the last pen and ink guys. Oh, wow. and there weren't very many left because computers took over everything, as you well know. Oh, yeah. So I have a good deal of his art collection, actually, um, in my properties. But the art in general enhances luxury hotels. And I've been fortunate to work with owners who have had private art collections that they like to loan to the hotels and to you know, show as part of their personal collections. We've commissioned art. We, we frequently will use local artists, for example, in the Aloft and Element programs in the Seaport. We used to use the Fort Point Channel Arts community. We sourced all the art through them oh, wow. and had particular artists do custom pieces. If you walk up the Grand Stair in the Aloft Hotel, you'll see this enormous, I think it's 30 by 70 foot painting, uh, all multiple panels. That's the signature piece to all the events that occur up that level. That's where all the function rooms and things are. And it's a real, it's a real iconic piece. And people take pictures of it and they put their groups on the staircase with the picture in the background. So, I mean, art is really, A, it's fun. B, it enhances the overall experience. Some of it's, you know, obviously a conscious thing. A lot of it's subliminal. A lot of it is, and you incorporate, you incorporate water uh, features and you incorporate lighting and you incorporate sense and you incorporate music. If you do all that well, all those senses, it just enhances the whole hotel. It becomes an experience as opposed to just a place to to go and crash at night. It actually becomes a whole experience that you can it, talk about. And it's also compelling because that it it brings people back. I have had more people in my career tell me that they came back to the hotel two or three key things and a lot of it had to do with the subliminal influences of the space and the, and, and the activity and of course the staff the, the service mm. is really key one of the questions i wanted to throw out there because of the the role that you play in bringing art into these different venues is a lot of young artists when i'm having conversations with them will ask about how do you get involved in something like that you know they can go to the gallery scene or they see work in restaurants or in hotels, and they start thinking that that's an interesting way to get the word out about what they do. But there's not an easy way in 
that certainly that I found, you know, you start meeting people and you start talking to people and then you start getting in. But is there what would be one hint that you could give to a young artist if they wanted to go into showing their work in a, in that kind of a venue? It's probably stating the obvious, but the biggest thing is get in early at the developer level, at the lawyer level, even if you can find out about a hotel mm -hmm. through a law firm that's coming to your market or coming to a situation that you want to be involved in. That's, it sounds ridiculous, but the lawyer will know the owner and the lawyer will also know in many cases, the architect. And it's at that level that a lot of the major decisions are made, not just about having art, but thematically having what type of art and how much money are they going to spend? I mean, I've spent millions on art and it's, it's at that level that decisions start getting made. And then it becomes a relationship spider effect out into the community to find the artists that can actually create it and deliver it. Mm. You and I have a mutual friend, Suzanne Schultz. Yeah. And uh, Suzanne uh, and I have talked about this many times. She was talking to me about this years ago and was telling me that, okay, if we're going to do this, we, we, we need to get in early. We need to find the right people to talk to way early on, not, not after. Once the hotel's up, they've already got their art. Well, well, that's it. That's it. And so much of it is decided by the owner or the principal local owner. You know, I mean, here's a good classic example. The Four Seasons, the new Four Seasons in Boston opened up just at the beginning of COVID. Mm. Couldn't have been worse timing. <laughs> But the art largely that went into both the residence program and the hotel program was driven by Dick Friedman in the local as the local developer in the group. Now he didn't make it all physically happen, but he drove the discussion and drove the agenda. He was the local connection to all those other folks. Four Seasons then went out and, and did their thing. And the residence program, I think even Suzanne had touched edges with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to New York with Suzanne a couple of times, I guess. I think so, at least once, um, to present this very topic to a series of art students in New York that um, wanted to know how to monetize their work. Mm -hmm. So it, it, there's no magic bullet, but I do encourage anyone to try to get in at the earliest possible stages that you can. Otherwise, you become part of a group of presenters at that, or it's, it's literally too late. Yeah. A lot of times the restaurant art will be subbed out separately. So your hotel theme and perhaps your, your function space, sometimes 50, 60, 80,000, you know, the art that goes into the function spaces is, is tremendous. All of that is usually done by the architect and the interior design people okay. um, with direction from the owner and direction from the company. But your restaurants in many cases are carved out and, and the art programs that go in there are done completely independent. Many times the chef, if it's a chef owner situation, with the restaurant, which a lot of hotels now do, the chef will have a lot to say about the art. I always bring the topic up at the earliest time that I can in the, in the course of beginning a program. Like I worked on the Kimpton program in St. Louis that's about to go on the ground. Uh, they've got two other sites we're working on. We've already started to talk about thematic uh, designs for the second hotel. And that, you know, I bring it up early, early, early on in our program. Hey, I want to know how much money they want to spend on art in general. And just, just generically, I mean, do they want to spend the least amount or the most amount? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it important to them or not important to them? And then I can kind of drive the agenda from there and drive the program and bring the people in that can help support it. Again, many, many times it's, it's a local thing. People want to stay in their background, in their, in their backyard. Yeah.
That so, makes sense. That makes sense. And then we we do a lot of exterior art too, with lighting and neon and art, you know, physical statues and and, mm. and creative things in the gardens and stuff. So, I mean, art can be manifest itself in many ways, as you know. We worked with, um, uh, gosh, her name escapes me right now, the lady that does the big, huge exterior uh, urban art curtains, the suspended mm. curtains. She did something uh, on she, the Greenway, right? She did for me. Yeah. Oh, we, were, wow. we were one of the we were one of the tieback points. Okay. And we we were one of the people that actually helped execute that program. And I tried to I have her actually. I didn't try it. Still in the mix uh, to bring her to the Kimpton Project in St. Louis. She's she's a worldwide renowned person in that particular field, and it's uh, it's a big commitment, but it's spectacular and, and it's got a, a daytime uh, impact. And a whole different nightclub. Yeah. So the hotel actually transitions with it. It's it's really a phenomenal thing. Oh wow! Anyway, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank I love, you. I love the art. <laughs> One question that I, I I ask everybody, mostly because I'm so fa- fascinated by the answers. So if you look back to that young person coming out of school and just getting into the hospitality industry, falling into it as you described it. What is one thing you wish you had known? If you could go back and talk to yourself with one secret. What would you tell yourself? Gosh, that's a very interesting thing. Um, I guess the first half of your career, you just try to be as engaged as you possibly can and let it take you, take you where it takes you. In the second half of the, your career, you've got all that knowledge to work from. And what you really need to do is, is spend more time listening. So I, I figured out after my third or fourth opening, and I wasn't necessarily the only guy that knew how to open hotels because when you're immersed in these things, they're overwhelming, quite honestly. I mean, they're crazy busy and back-to-back, you know, seven days a week type of thing. And when you come out the other end and you go you go to the next one, you know, it just gets bigger and bigger and more complex as you go along. And eventually you just have to kind of pull yourself out a little bit and say, wait a second, you know, I, I need to spend more time listening and and, and, and learning from other people and bringing their their knowledge and expertise to the table. So I, I don't know. The sooner you learn that, the better, I suppose, in, in our business. Our business, it, it's a whole passion thing, as I mentioned earlier, but if you aren't good at multitasking, forget about the hospitality business. <laughs> if you want to multi, if you want to be a one-trick pony, if you will, and be a very successful financier or accountant or whatever, go do it. But the hospitality industry is very diverse and very sporadic and very spontaneous. And you have to be able to jump and move and, and pivot nonstop to stay with it and, and to make it successful. And it's a rhythm. And it took me about a year after I got out of operations to get rid of that, that pace. <laughs> you know, it's a rhythm you develop and it's just instinctual. And, you know, you miss you don't really miss some of it. You don't miss the phone calls at four in the morning the hotel's on fire. But, you know, <laughs> you, you miss the day-to-day. You miss the day-to-day excitement. You miss the day-to-day. It, it's the customer in, interaction and it's the employees. That's what really makes it fun and makes it rewarding. I have customers that still I still am friends with to this day from oh, back wow. in the Bostonian in the 80s. That's I'm, still, I'm still in touch with them. 
That's wonderful. I, yeah, I, I know what you mean though. I, I still now I've been out of the hospitality industry for what, 25 years. I still have dreams about when I was a bartender on, you know, the days when the ice machine ran out or someone <laughs> broke a glass in the ice bucket or the, the beer yeah. ran out in this one flavor that everyone was after at that point. Um, I, and I, I imagine I probably have them forever. Uh, that just, it, it was it was fun it was great action but uh yeah it was it was hard to keep multitasking um yeah. and i, yeah, I eventually went to the photography route yeah it i mean it was great fun and i got a lot of great friends out of it but uh it was mm -hmm. it was a tough business to be sure i should write a book because there's a lot of stories i have to change all the names but that's okay well that's okay that's okay i'm sure the stories <laughs> will be fascinating though You've certainly built all these different properties and have built these institutions in certainly in Boston and in these other places. What do you feel your legacy is going to be when you get done? I just hope that people, I hope that people and mostly the employees respect how they were treated. Our industry is known for burning people out. Mm -hmm. And I made a point early on, because I got burned out early on too, and I stuck with it, survived it, but I've always tried not to create that burnout environment. Because in the long run, it's, it's you know, it's a short-term gain, long-term loss. You've got yeah. to balance everything. So I, I would like to think that the people that I worked with and for, uh, from owners on down and customers or anything else, just thought that the style was was fun and, and respectful. If you're not having fun doing what you're doing, is it really worth doing it? Uh, no. No, I agree. <laughs> and if you're having fun doing it, you'll never work a day in your life. That's true. That's true. I uh, subscribe to that philosophy totally. Definitely. Wonderful. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Always great to talk about it. I've got to go. One of your questions was, what do I eat after a long day? Uh, Hold on, I was going to ask you that one. I, I got away from that one, but let's, let's go with that. Let's, go, <laughs> let, let, let's end on that note. <laughs> what would be your ideal meal at the end of the day? So I'm about to go out and do it because uh, I always keep fresh, uh, I should say frozen, very large uh, quality shrimp in the house and greens, of course, and, and spices and butter and whatever. And, and there's nothing better for a quick meal than a little pasta and shrimp scampi. Oh, and you can put it together quickly. And um, it's just, it's comfort food. So that's, that's kind of my go-to. That sounds wonderful. But anyways, <laughs> in any case, great to see you. Great to, uh, your artwork is phenomenal. It's, it's spectacular, Suzanne and I have talked very thoroughly oh, about it. thank you. And uh, I, hope, uh, I hope it's all either found a home or is finding We're working on it. Thanks for checking in with Cherry Bomb, the podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Glass, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest was Tim Kerwin, CEO of Hotel Creations Plus. You can see shining examples of his work, well, just about anywhere. If you like the podcast and want to support what we do, it is as simple as rating us in your podcast listening app. Share it on your Facebook feed or on Twitter. Anything you can do to help us get the word out there will help us to grow and make this podcast strong. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, please feel free to drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com. Cherry Bomb the Podcast is produced by me with consulting help from Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts. We are also helped by Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.